to the first episode of the Red Passport. I'm Peter Danolo in Toronto. I was Director of Communications in a Prime Minister's office and then a diplomat for Canada abroad. I'm Vice Chair of the Canadian International Council. My partners on this and every episode of the Red Passport will be two very seasoned Canadian ex-ambassadors actively engaged in world affairs today. Jeremy Kinsman is a former Canadian ambassador to Russia, Italy, and the European Union, and High Commissioner to the UK. And for decades, one of Canada's most vital, creative, and influential senior diplomats. Jeremy's also taught at Princeton, at Berkeley, and at Ryerson. He's coming to us today from Victoria. In her 25 years as a diplomat, Louise Bless served as Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. And she also held senior roles in managing our complex relationship with the US. In fact, that's where Louise is right now, in Atlanta, where she's currently diplomat in residence at the Georgia Institute of Technology. This is serious horsepower, and we aim to put it to good use. The goal isn't to report global news, it's to talk about and debate what Canada ought to be doing in the world today. We may disagree, and we want to hear from you, members across Canada of the CIC, and from anyone who cares about our country and its perspective on events and its role in the world. But first, a word about our name. We've called this podcast Red Passport. That's the color of the passport held by Canada's ambassadors and diplomats around the globe. Louise, Jeremy, and I have all held a red passport at various stages in our careers. So in one way, the name of our podcast symbolizes the insights and perspectives we've gained about how our country mixes and acts in the world. But more important, we hope that this podcast will provide listeners with their own virtual red passport, giving them access to the kind of thinking and considerations that go on inside Canadian governments trying to steer our country through often turbulent global situations, and in that Canadian way, trying to make a positive difference beyond our borders. So let's get right to it. Many would say turbulent doesn't even begin to describe the world today. Two major conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza are raging, alliances are being redrawn as a landscape of international influence shifts, and decades of relative international st stability are being upended. It's been two years since the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, and the balance seems to have tipped again, this time to Russia's advantage. Where is this going? Navalny's death, Republican cold feet in Washington, what does this all mean? Meanwhile, in Gaza, there's, there's also no end in sight since that conflict began in October. In fact, both these conflicts threaten to break out into wider wars. And this is with a backdrop of public opinion in all Western countries deeply divided on both these wars. In the West, there's growing fatigue with uh, the war in Ukraine and the stalemate that's, uh, that's occurred there and the constant demands for Western, Western support, fun, financial support and arms. And uh, we've seen in campuses, university campuses and streets across North America, Canada, the US, and Europe, that support that, that opinion on the Middle East conflict, the Gaza conflict, is deeply, deeply divided uh, along generational lines, along ethnic lines, causing serious domestic support for uh, domestic problems for Western governments, and really putting into question uh, where this conflict is going. So, Jeremy, this 
it's up to you now to untangle this mess to help us figure out where are these conflicts going are they going to are they going to break out into wider conflicts i won't say this is unprecedented in our global history certainly it's certainly conflict is not but in terms of the 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 post cold war era this is really a singular moment isn't it yeah it is i think we've always had lots of wars i mean most people in canada and the west you know are blithely unaware of, of say the war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, this has been going on for decades and has killed many more than a million people or the civil war in Myanmar or, you know, what uh, continues to flare up in Sudan and Ethiopia, but they didn't involve us. And they didn't, as you say, connect to our public opinion and our issues, some of which are budgetary issues. Others uh, are psychological issues. And, and the biggest issue of all is is whether these two wars uh, can metastasize and actually uh, directly involve us. What's happened in Russia, you know, is, is really a, a part of a long continuum of, of the end of the Cold War and, and the difficulties of transformation of formerly communist societies and the emergence uh, in Russia of a, a strong man who increasingly has become, and I think he's got to be called for what it is, uh, a fascist leader and a leader who is governing uh, basically by fear. Uh, the significance of, of, of Navalny's death uh, last week, uh, I think is huge because Navalny was a, an absolutely galvanizing figure in Russia, not for everybody, because he can't get on television, but he was an absolute master of, of digital communication and of social networks. So uh, he, he absolutely was uh, on people's little screens somehow and, and, and in the bigger cities very, very much uh, uh, on their minds. And he was a very unique uh, Russian figure as a politician. He was a born politician. Uh, he had a wonderful, engaging personality, very challenging, but very funny and ironic. You know, uh, he, he's kind of like John Stewart every day. I mean, he was he was challenging uh, this society and the leadership on its endemic, thorough corruption. And everybody in Russia, you know, knew he was right. And that is why uh, he began to be someone whom the regime and Putin specifically really feared. He came to the fore in those huge demonstrations in 2011, which turned out hundreds of thousands of people who objected to the way that Putin was coming back to power in kind of a closed room deal with, with Dmitry Medvedev and over uh, obviously rigged parliamentary elections. And at that time, those of us who watched Russia were asking ourselves, you know, who's coming back? The old Putin, the guy who was trying to be a centrist and to some extent connect to the West if he could, or is this some kind of new hardline nationalist? And today we know the answer. Navalny's message to Russians was don't be afraid. Don't be scared. You can do it. We can do it together. Putin's message to Russia is exactly the opposite. Yes, you should be afraid. 
you can't do it together. You're going to do what I say. And essentially, uh, that is why they killed him. The question is, are Russians going to go back into their shells? They're intimidated. They're repressed. You can't express your view on almost anything, uh, or it will redound on you. One third of Russians work for the state or on your families. Your kid will get kicked out of university. Uh, it's ex and a million, a million of the brightest and best have left the country. So it's very hard to say. There's a, a strong coterie of uh, Russian commentators, now mostly outside the country I know, who said that this is it, that the killing of Navalny ends everything. It ends hope, and it's going to put people into a period of despondency. I don't think so. I think the opposite is going to happen. People can see that Putin is scared. He's scared even of Navalny's dead body and won't give it to his mother, for heaven's sake. It, it is a, a, a situation in which he can continue to control by force, but he is running a war which is not a popular war. In both Russia and Ukraine, the, the burden of public opinion, irrespective of the fact that each wants, doesn't want their side to lose, uh, each, most of all, wants this war to stop. And so it isn't just in the West that people are tired of the war. People are terribly tired of the war in Ukraine. The question is, how does it end? And, and the position now of, of the leaders of both sides, and, and they're not equivalents because Putin started this war. He started this war with, with the ambition of conquest, and he has lost that. So Putin, while, however he describes it, or presents himself is already a loser. Uh, Zelensky started the war defensively, and and his ambition was survival of the country, and it has survived. And so, however you cut it, uh, if this stalemate persists, Ukraine ends up a winner. But because of what's happened, each leader has come up with maximalist ambitions uh, for the war. Uh, Putin still insists that he is going to take over Ukraine. Uh, Yavlensky insists that Ukraine can uh, not just fight back, but can throw the Russians out of the territories they occupied before two years ago. I don't think either of those is possible, but you can't say it these days because it would be seen to undermine confidence in Yavlinsky and the Ukrainian uh Ukrainian campaign and 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 gestalt and self belief, so it, it's very very difficult. But it will end sooner or later, as all wars end, in negotiation of some kind. And it's very very important that the West or whoever continues to supply to Ukraine the arms and ordnance they need to compensate for the fact that Russia has such inbuilt advantages, both of population and of a whole, a whole back country that has now converted its economy into a war economy and can outproduce them. Putin thinks that time is on his side and it's us up to the West to prove that it's not. And all of the things you mentioned about uncertainty threaten to undermine that. 
but it's not hopeless. And this could be the year or the end of this year where it, it does come to some kind of cease in the fighting. And then I guess we're going to be into a long cold war with a very hostile Russia. But, you know, Louise, this is a great segue to you because um, uh, Jeremy pointed out that that uh, Ukraine needs uh, needs armaments. It needs support. It needs Western uh, money uh, to offset the uh, huge advantage that uh, Russia has just by its size and scale. Uh, yet you, you spent a lot of your career in the U.S. You're there right now in Atlanta. Uh, and uh, opinion seems to have shifted in the U.S. on on the the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. At least it seems uh, support for the U- for Ukraine seems a lot weaker than it did just a few months ago. Even politically, we have Trump uh, saying uh, all sorts of uh, things that are uh, pro pro Putin that are extremely inflammatory, and we have Congress sitting on their hands in some cases pro-Russian as well. Uh, what do you make of all this? Where's, where's this going to go? Well, Peter, I think we forgot when the, when the war broke out, when the Russian Federation invaded, that the United States had really moved into an isolationist position. I mean, they pulled out of Afghanistan. It was clear that there's fatigue in the U.S. for the United States having to fight other uh, other people's war. So that was the context. And in that context, actually, it was really surprising to the degree to which Biden was able to raise, uh, raise support, raise money, rally around NATO allies, rally around Europeans, and, and get, uh, get the, the support that Zelensky so needed in the early stage of the war. But now, I get, as you describe, I think we're falling back to that really basic position in the United States. And I think to Jeremy's point in terms of waiting this out, I mean, I'm 100% convinced that Putin is going to wait out the election this year with the hope that Trump gets elected and that changes and that he has in the United States a country much more predisposed to perhaps negotiate in his favor. I think I don't see the conflict ending before then. Um, and uh, and I think that that's, that's what we can look at uh, unfortunately, four to this year. What I find, a lot, the other thing I will say is after two years of this uh, egregious uh, war, this, this egregious invasion of another sovereign state, is the fact that Russia is not as isolated as we would have wanted it to be by this stage. It still has China in its corners. I mean, you hear Brazil uh, it still supplies a lot of countries oil and uh, oil and gas and but above and beyond all that i think there is a sort of the global south is sort of thinking look this is not our war there's other things we should be focusing on um we should turn the page and they're just not going to rally around uh, many many more un resolutions putin knows that too and uh, he, he's using that, I think, that leverage. And I think that that is unfortunate, um, but that's the way that, that the world is, is today. So we'll have to wait and see, I think, what happens in the U.S. in the election, see which side um, uh, wins. Uh, there is obviously this other war that you alluded to, Gaza, that has, I think, made things complicated for, uh, for the president, for his re-election uh, hopes. So we'll have to wait and see. But I think it's we're entering that period now of too close to the election for big denouements in some of these conflicts, I'm afraid. 
But it's really not just uh, the U.S. might be most extreme in terms of the opinion shifts or the sense of isolation. Uh, but it's not just in those in the U.S. That, that opinion is shifting on on this conflict and that opinion is deeply divided on on Gaza. There had been, you know, initiatives that were showing some traction prior to October to try and uh, uh, bring along uh, some of the Gulf states and more peaceful relations with Israel. That's all gone now. Uh, historically, the, uh, the outside world, particularly the U.S., has played a role in, uh, in trying to, uh, in peace initiatives in, in the Middle East. Is that over now? I mean, is this, let's talk about Gaza for a minute. What, what role do, do countries like obviously the US but but countries like Canada and western european countries what role can we have in in uh, in trying to to end this situation jeremy what do you think well peter the thing is that uh, it's been going on of course since 1948 and and in fact some would say it's been going on for a couple of thousand of years but uh, we we really gave our best when I say we, I, I'm going to say virtually all countries in the world after the Gulf War in 1991, um, which involved, of course, uh, it was essential to involve Arab countries against Saddam Hussein. And they consented. But the condition was that after the war, uh, the, the sponsors, uh, the main participants in the, uh, in the UN authorized action against uh, against Saddam and Kuwait would would press Israel and press parties to reach a definitive agreement on the Arab on the Israeli Arab issue. And so we got to Oslo and we had Oslo and we had the two state solution uh, as as the postulate of how two peoples can essentially share a land by dividing it between them. It's not terribly different in some respects than, than the, the Russian-Ukrainian issue in that respect. It's the most ancient reason for people to fight each other that's ever existed. And we had it. And then, and then an Israeli, and I don't want to blame them, just them, because the PLO was obstreperous and, and, and kind of, 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 of what will I say, evasive. But uh, Netanyahu uh, ran uh, against any such deal and has held to that uh, for the rest of his time in politics. And Israelis moved increasingly into a kind of security uh, mindset uh, that dominated all, especially after the intifadas and, and terrorism, which of course occurred because of the enduring occupation of the, of the, of the, of the territories. Where, where we are now, is is somewhere like that but very much deeper the two sides distrust each other totally to the point that a two-state solution which had majority support in israel only 10 years ago and among palestinians now has support only from about 20 percent of either side because they so distrust each other where does that place the world in this conflict I think the world uh, came to uh, Israel heart and soul after October 7th with uh, empathy, much as the world did to the United States in 9-11. In uh, and it's not that that uh, has been exhausted, but it's been overtaken by what is considered to be the disproportionate 
military reaction of the Israelis. But that military reaction, which seems, which is disproportionate and which is objected to in the West, is deeply supported among Israelis. I mean, it has 80, 85 percent. And, and the idea, it is true, Netanyahu is trying desperately to hang on to his position and this war uh, keeps him in it. But, but he's, he's not pursuing the war just because of that. He's pursuing the war this way because most Israelis feel that it, it's in that that they're going to find their redemption. It's going to take enormous uh, diplomacy to arrange things so that these psychological factors are, are not barriers to, to an outcome. And I, though I agree absolutely with Israel that Biden, with uh, that, that, that the United States, that with, I, I agree with Louise that but Biden yanking the Americans out of Afghanistan the way he did was disruptive and incompetent. It was responding to an American isolationist impulse, which is, you know, no more boots on the ground out there. And I think that remains. But this American administration is the most engaged and globalist and creative and, 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 and what will I say, effective in diplomacy of any in my lifetime. And I include James Baker and, and, and Madeleine Albright and all those people. It is extraordinary. The diplomacy they're conducting, not just with Israel, but, but with the Saudis, with, with Qatar, with Lebanon, even behind the curtains with, with Hezbollah, of course, with Egypt. It's remarkable. And, uh, and they're getting stiff, by the way, uh, by Netanyahu. Uh, and, and I think it's going to lead to, if not, not a rupture, but, but a, a historically unprecedented distance is going to widen between this government in Israel and Biden's administration. Whether that's going to help Biden between now and November, I don't know. It could help or it could hurt. So we're in a, a critical phase. I think it's going to break at least the business of a pause or a truce, whatever we call it, that's going on in the United Nations now, uh, and the hostages, remaining hostages, I think that's going to break in the next two or three weeks. But how the long term evolves, I don't know. Uh, Netanyahu announced today that he intends uh, that Israel uh, remain uh, permanently the security present in Gaza. That is diametrically opposed to what the United States wants. What are we going to see there? I remember in 82 when I was in Washington that Ronald Reagan pulled the plug in F-16s to Israel because of the uh, excessive violence they were using in the war in, in South Lebanon uh, that year. And uh, I don't know if Biden is, uh, is, is, is in principle and psychologically up to that. But I think we're coming to a climax of that war. And, uh, and, and though it's going to be a long, drawn-out and contentious outcome, uh, you know, it, it, hopefully this nightmare may come, at least in its violence, to an end. Louise, uh, Israel is losing um, uh, international support every month, every week uh, that, the, that the Gaza war goes on. Uh, the U.S. Uh, public opinion is divided on it. 
Jeremy talked about how uh, the fine line that the U.S. administration is playing and the leadership is trying to show. You're there. What uh, do you have any thoughts on 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 where that's going? On how long that can go for? And of course, uh, my guess is if if Putin is uh, is waiting waiting uh, for an election, hoping that Trump will win, my guess is that Netanyahu is doing the same thing. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, the, well, you're right. The fact of the matter is, in the United States, uh, uh, Biden aside, uh, the Republicans are or have been really enormous allies of of Israel and Israelis. So there are there, and you still hear that support is very very present in Congress, for example. But at the same time, I think there's a realization that. The United States has expanded enormous capital on this. And as Jeremy was saying, it's quite impressive to see the, the diplomatic uh, choreography that, that we're seeing taking place. But at the same time, when you look at it, really, there's um, at the UN, there is a discontent, uh, not just at Israel, but at, at the United States' uh, support of Israel. And I think the use of the veto by the U.S. three times since the conflict started is enormous. In the history of the U.N., the U.S. has used its veto maybe 80 times over all these years. So now just in a few months, three veto. It is totally isolated in its position that a ceasefire would be a win to Hamas. The others don't feel this way, and others feel that the, the cost, the civilian impact has been such that really, as we saw, the um, uh, South Africa took Israel to the ICJ and, and accused it of genocide. Uh, these are enormous um, diplomatic movements by countries that are, uh, that are I think, have making their opinions known. And I think that we talked earlier about the po- still the possibility of this conflict uh, spreading militarily. But even if it doesn't, it has spread in the sense that it has now really weakened the United States internationally. I think there's the sense now more and more, it's emboldened many actors um, that whether it's the Brazils, the Indias and the others into saying, wait a second, United States, you really do have a double standard here. That when certain countries do, um, do uh, like for example, obviously the Russian Federation uh, terrible attacks on Ukraine, many of it on civilian installations. You are decrying it, but then when it's Israel, you're you you basically uh, not only uh, protect them but but arm them. So there is that that while that diplomacy in the back room is happening, as Jeremy is saying, and quite effectively, and I think they are getting closer and closer to a re- the release of hostages. Although I really do wonder. I was just to give you an example when. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. said one of the the reasons why we're not going to support this latest ceasefire resolution brought to the U.N. Security Council by Algeria is because we feel that it would uh, undermine these negotiations. And what we're going to do, the U.S., we're going to come with another resolution and the resolution will condemn Hamas further, will ensure that Hamas has no role in the post-war regime, and, go, and she goes on and on. But how can you negotiate with Hamas for the release of hostages if you're basically saying that one resolution that is about a ceasefire is a no-go, but the one that basically says we want to destroy you, Hamas, how is that going to bring Hamas to the table? So 
I'm, I'm confused about that positioning of the United States, and I don't think I'm the only one. I think there's some, uh, uh, I think, inconsistency in, in how they're, they're playing this um, recently at the UN. But, uh, but I do agree that um, Biden and Blinken in particular are putting in a lot of personal capital in these negotiations in the back room, and maybe some, some good will come out of that. But the kind of um, the choreography you've been talking about uh, at the UN is really an example of what's been the case, particularly in Middle East policy, but in foreign policy for a long time in the US, which is domestic politics taking a big place in foreign policy. You know, we've seen that in Canada in recent years, too, and we see it this the conflict in Gaza. Uh, we've seen the we've almost been able to watch the the political calculations on the part of our government uh, in terms of its own UN votes and its own stances. And this is really something relatively new. I say this to both of you as someone who, you know, w was in the prime minister's office for many years, which is that uh, the the politicization of foreign conflicts for domestic, domestic partisan purposes is something relatively new in Canada. Been at it in the States for a while relatively new here. I mean, for example, for decades on the Middle East, Canada was a, was a, a friend of Israel, close to Israel, but we were always seen as a, as a relatively honest broker when it came to, uh, to uh, uh, peace solutions there. That started to change as we started to change our UN votes in the 2000s. Uh, and I would argue it was, it was uh, for the purposes of, of domestic uh, politics that we did that. Uh, is this a new reality in Canada too? And it's been said, and this is a question, maybe it's a rhetorical question, that that you know, one former foreign minister once said to me that you know we're at our Canada's at its best when it's uh, we're the useful country. Uh, what can we do of use in this current situation, or as we as hobbled by domestic political considerations and by a relative decline of middle powers, uh, as as I think we are, Louise, you, you might have something on this. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to answer that, that question first, but I wanted to really emphasize the point you just made, Peter, very briefly. Um, obviously, when I was helping run our last campaign for the UN Security Council, our position on Israel and um, Palestinian came up all the time. Many countries saying there's no way they're going to vote for us because they know we would side with the Americans on the UN Security Council on any issues related to, to Palestine. Um, but when you're talking about the the person the, the domestic coming into the fore, I have to tell you, the week before the vote, there was a letter writing campaign coming out of Canada, going to all of the embassies uh, at the uh, all the permanent delegation in New York, telling them. So these are Canadian entities um, telling other countries not to vote for Canada uh, because of our positioning on um, on the conflict. So it's, it's not just that it influenced, but it actually kind of leaped into uh, uh, the fore in this case. So it's very complicated for Canada, a country of immigration that has enormous diasporas and, and is built on multiculturalism and respect. And it plays, it does play in, and, and it, it the difference is it used to be that the Israeli lobby had more power, and now things are shifting demographically in Canada. And uh, Arabs and Muslim communities are organizing uh, and politically in a way that they hadn't before. And so now you're seeing coalitions being made with student groups and other NGOs, and now we have this, this 
really, I think, uh, um, uh, difficult landscape for any government to navigate. And our government is being criticized uh, recently for its nuanced position on, on the Middle East at this moment. And um, yet, what else could it do? It's trying to, it, the government is trying to weigh both, you know, both sides. And this is a complex issue. It's coming, yes, it's coming in the middle. It's probably dissatisfying uh, both extreme. But, but as far as I'm concerned, perhaps that is, that is the correct Canadian position to have. And I don't think anyone is really asking us internationally about where we sit. I think it's going to take a long time for us to appear to other nations to be objective on this issue, given the, rec the record that you have just uh, outlined, Peter. Uh, but I think a, a measured approach is probably in the best interest of Canada, certainly, and our communities and our Canadians, and, and probably better globally. Good. Jeremy, well, let's a quick last word on this. I think we'll should, we should wrap up. Well, I, I you know, I, we lost that election. I'm sorry, Louise. Uh, I'm sure that if you were uh, heading it up uh, visibly, we would have won it. But we lost it because we are up against two countries who deserved it more, Ireland and Norway, two of the most uh, popular countries uh, in the world from the so-called West. And why is that? It's because those two countries are doing today what Canada used to do. Uh, Ireland has been, um, uh, of course, it's been a semi-neutral country. So a lot of people uh, in the hedging middle south uh, like Ireland and every city has an Irish pub, don't forget. But uh, it's because they're a major uh, contribution to peacekeeping, human rights, an emphatic record of fairness. And Norway, the Oslo Accords for the Middle East are called the Oslo Accords for a reason, and uh, and Norway, uh, they're both. Uh, Norway is a huge uh, spender on uh, foreign aid, whereas ours has dropped. So we had we had tough opponents. Our our role as a multicultural society and inclusivity and all of that has become spoiled because of the way that uh, different governments, riding by riding, uh, plays diaspora uh, issues on foreign affairs. It's become spoiled at a time when one of the world's biggest phobias right now is immigration. And uh, a whole lot of countries aren't so thrilled with uh, multiculturalism at all. They tend to be tribal majorities. And so uh, that's uh, tough. The last thing I'd say is that, you know, in the United States, the Republican issue of border security is not invented. It's real. I mean, what is it, two million people this year? And, uh, and Biden is going to come down with an executive order on this, which is going to be tougher than what Trump introduced on, on, on so-called closing the border. Uh, uh, in Canada, uh, the expenditures on Ukraine, Canadians have supported it enormously. But, you know, now uh, we're under pressure to go to 2% of GDP on military expenditure because of all the things we've been talking about and the dangers that lie ahead going from 1.4%, we're talking at least $20 billion. And where's it gonna come from? And Canadians are saying to themselves, you know, what's happened to Trudeau's pharmacare program or his program for, uh, for, for dental care or, or the $10 a day daycare? How are we gonna pay for that? How are we gonna unclog our health systems? You can't get an MRI in less than three months. So. Uh, you know, it's it's competing with real things at home, not just with 
with you know Tamil or Sikh uh, or or Palestinian or 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 you know uh, sentiments. It's 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 a, it's it's in a kind of an internal quarrel with what Canadians think they need for themselves, and uh, that's not necessarily isolationism. It's just a statement of the complexity of running a government, Peter, that you know very well. Uh, in, in any times, and this is certainly not the best times. Wow. All right. Well, this has been a pretty good effort. Not bad for first go around. We may have uh, raised more questions than we answered, but. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Uh, we're just getting started. Uh, so for anyone who's listening, I want you to know we'll be back to you in the next few weeks with a second Red Passport conversation. And we intend to make this an ongoing conversation, not just among ourselves, but we hope you get back to us with your feedback and questions. Because uh, as we discussed today, these are important issues that uh, go to the very core of our, of our existence as a country. In the meantime, we hope you can tune in to uh, Ruth Ramirez's Open Canada podcast, also hosted on the CIC, uh, by the CIC on the Open Canada page. Uh, Ruth talks to outstanding Canadians who are making a difference in the world scene, and it's really worth listening to. Until next time, on behalf of uh, Louise Blais, uh, Jeremy Kinsman, and me, Peter Danolo, thanks for listening.